0: Welcome to the Tough Cookie Podcast, sharing stories of amazing inspiration, hope, and resilience from transplant recipients and people with chronic illnesses. And here's your host, Patricia Shades. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Tough Cookie Podcast. Um, I'm really excited today to have Rochelle Panitz with me. Uh, To speak all about her story. Um, I'm not going to ask too much of Michelle today. I'm going to lend the microphone just to her so she can tell you her phenomenal, all about her
1: phenomenal self. Michelle, hi. Hey. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me on your beautiful podcast and congratulations for getting it together. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. That's awesome. Uh, So, well, I, I think your praise is undeserved, but thank you very much for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited uh, more to share the story uh, because I think that that's probably one of the most important things that as people who've been through something, that we share what we've learned so that the next person following us has an easier time of it. So yep, um, absolutely. yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm really glad that you're going to be talking to so many people who've been through such adversity um, and to see what they did to overcome. So um, for me, uh, I was somebody who always had my life pretty much put together. I was pretty driven and goal-focused, I lived overseas, I traveled a lot, I'd started, you know, settling down I'd moved back to Australia and started settling down in 2010. I had my daughter and um, come 2013 I was pregnant with my son um, and that's sort of when things for me really kind of started properly um, but I probably want to take it back even further, like well before that because things that happened to me throughout my life as with everybody – lead you on a a path that gives you the outcome that you you need. And I think that having the knowledge that hopefully you'll get from listening to this podcast might actually just be that little cookie crumb um, on your life journey that hopefully might give you the information you need to get an early diagnosis of your own. Uh, So for me, As a young woman, I remember fronting up to my GP and saying, oh, look, can you show me how to do a breast exam? Um, And it wasn't ever anything that I was ever really concerned about because I had no family history. Um, My mother is one of six women in her family. Um, None of my grandparents, none of my father's sisters had ever been touched by cancer of any description. So for me, I was fairly safe in and comfortable in the knowledge that that wasn't really something that my genetics had Um, but I was also pretty um, health literate because my mum and most of her sisters are nurses so from a very young age I have always been taught to ask questions and to get a second opinion and uh, you know Doctors are people too, and to just make sure that whatever you hear is something that sits right with you. So, with that as a bit of a background, I remember seeing doctors as a young woman and saying, "Look, is this normal? Is this, you know, can you show me how to check?" And never really being quite comfortable with it myself because I never really understood what was normal for me, even though I was doing lots of different checks. Um, but I continued, and I think that was the important thing, you know. I, I was. Even though I didn't know whether or not it was okay, I would go and ask, I would go and check and I would do those things at the bare minimum, which is what I tell other ladies to do. So fast forward till I'm living in Japan and I get a phone call from a friend back in Australia who's 36. She's just had her third. Her third is still breastfeeding. Uh, She's only 10 months old and she's just been diagnosed with breast cancer. And I remember thinking, gee, that's young. That's, that's quite young, and I wasn't even 30 myself yet at that point, so I thought, wow, you know, that's a lot earlier than I expected. Um, but it wasn't unexpected for me in her situation because she had a family history of cancer, so I just thought perhaps it was genetic and that was the reasoning. Um, but I guess it, for me it was it kind of shattered that illusion that breast cancer was for older women, and um, I, I went on with my life and I breastfed my, my daughter and I think of all the things I did to know my body the best, checking my breasts as I was as breastfeeding just to make sure that I wasn't going to get mastitis um, was probably the thing that ended up saving my life because I really got to know what was normal and, um and how it how it was supposed to feel and what was what was normal for me. so um, I was there laying in my bed um, pregnant 2013, the end of the year third trimester and I'm 32 years old. my daughter's not yet three years old and um, I see a hanger, In my cupboard that my sister has sent me from something that she's been to she's also in the health profession as an allied health worker and uh, it was about doing a breast check and so it was from the Sydney Breast Cancer Institute and it was hanging in my my closet and I saw it this night and I thought you know what I couldn't quite remember when the last time I'd done a check was but I thought you know it's probably a good idea to do one. Um, And I even remember questioning whether or not I needed to bother while I was pregnant, but I did anyway. And um, I felt this kind of hard knot, if you will, in my right breast. And so I turned to my husband and I said, what do you think? And he said, well, look, why don't we just show the obstetrician at the next appointment? At that stage, we were seeing her every week or every other week. Um, and so I did, and when we did see her, I felt quite, I guess, a bit silly talking to her about it and asking her about it. I felt like maybe I was, you know, overthinking things. And so she checked it and said, "Oh, yep, yeah, I can feel something there, but it's probably just your body getting used to um, the baby and maybe getting ready for the birth." And so that was kind of where it where it stopped. So I didn't think about it much until after the baby was born and I was again checking my breasts and this, this little knot I had felt in my third trimester, I felt that it had actually grown and that to me sparked bigger alarm bells because I thought, am I really thinking this? Is it just in my imagination or is this real and is it really happening to me? Um, Like I said, no family history, breastfed, young, no smoke. I've never smoked, um, wasn't drinking at all, especially not between kids and being pregnant. Um, So lots of low risk factors. And I kind of thought "This this is, nah, it's not possible. That's like, so I started doctor Googling and trying to figure out what it might be. Anyway, so I decided I was going to call my obstetrician and see if I could get in early to see her and show her this thing. Uh, because obviously we were waiting until after the baby was born to to check it out. Uh, But I didn't get to speak to her. In fact, um, I was told basically I wasn't going to be able to see her until the six-week checkup. Uh, So I thought I'd I'd call my obstetrician and I couldn't actually get in. I was told I wasn't going to be able to get in to see her until at least the six-week checkup. Uh, which was not for another four and a half, five weeks. So anyway, I decided that uh, that wasn't good enough and I really wanted to get um, investigated and I'd asked her what I should do Uh, and her receptionist told me, go and see your GP if you're really worried. So I did and my GP thankfully did not dismiss my concerns. She actually suggested uh, that I go and see um, a very high profile consultant, which I did the very next day, and, and one of her team did my ultrasound. Um, so I'm 10 days postpartum at this point, so you know, lots of things going on in my breasts, lactating, all those sorts of things going on. Anyway, the woman uh, she tried to see something, couldn't see anything, like you couldn't easily feel it, but you couldn't see anything on any of the ultrasounds. So the, the lady in the waiting room, though, uh, that wasn't the lady who had done my ultrasound. She was another consultant, started telling me my results in front of everybody in the waiting room. And oh so there I am, like, running towards her, trying to, like, get her to, you know. Protect my your privacy. Inf- exactly. And... Um, she was basically telling me it's just normal lactating tissue, nothing to worry about. Um, because I was really worried. I mean, if you've ever been to a specialist breast diagnostics clinic, there are lots of people there that are not getting good news. And of course I I was looking around at some of these, a lot of them older ladies, thinking, thank God I'm not in here for that. And so <laughs> I did remember saying something to the um, the clinician around you know what if this is you know actually something more sinister you know what should I do when should I come back and she said don't come back for six months um and I said what if there's something like that I like there's something there and she said well you know come back earlier but she was getting quite agitated and frustrated with me as I was asking her these questions and I just sort of thought you know I spent over three hundred dollars for that um ultrasound the report that actually went back to my GP said do not um, refer for 12 months and I thought later, you know, if I had just left it there and just thought, you know, they've done their job, I've done as much as I could do, I've gone and got an ultrasound, they've told me it's nothing, I wouldn't be here today. That's like yeah. the hard and fast of it. Yeah. So um, I remember saying something to my mother and as I said, she's a nurse and um, I asked her where she goes to get her mammograms and ultrasounds. And she said, look, I used to go to one hospital I now go to the hospital I work at. And I said, do you think you could get me an appointment? Like I'm pretty sure that it's nothing, but I would just like to get a second opinion because I just feel like, you know, maybe my breasts, you know, they've changed now since, you know, first from being just postpartum to now, who knows, maybe we'll be able to find something on there. So we did. And was it
0: just a really, really niggling feeling? Was it just something that just didn't sit right with you and you after that first ultrasound?
1: Look, the thing was that I could feel something. And so even if there even if it was a cyst or a benign anything, they should have been able to see something on the ultrasound. Yeah. And they couldn't see anything on the ultrasound. Um, and the thing was that because I'd breastfed Emily, I just knew that that wasn't there when I was feeding her. Um, I had never had the not feeling. Um, yeah. And if I had, I would have thought that it was a blocked milk duct or, you know, the beginnings of mastitis or something. I would have had that yeah. dealt with. But, you know, she was, as I said, she was three years old by this stage. And um, this thing, wasn't going away. It was actually, like I said, feeling larger than I'd initially felt it. Um and I guess part of me was just like I don't want to be thinking of myself as a hypochondriac, but I just want somebody to reassure me that it's actually nothing. And that you like if I if I was wrong and if it was nothing, then that's great. That's At a wonderful outcome. Yeah. But yeah, if it isn't, then like I guess for, from a very young age, we're all told an early diagnosis is your best, you know, possible outcome. And that is literally still the case for people with, with cancer. So 17th of January, I finally get in to get that ultrasound and I'd gone to see my GP's locum because she'd had a family issue come up. And, um, the locum said to me, look, I'm only going to give you an ultrasound, but I'm just going to write down mammogram on the referral too, just in case they're probably not going to give it to you. And when I went up for that ultrasound, you know, an hour after waiting and, and the whole leaving my my newborn um, and three-year-old with my aunt and, you know, having all this breast milk available and ready for this newborn. <laughs> Um, And her sort of questioning me, like, was I going to be okay going up there to get these tests done by myself and me being very blasé and saying, look, it's nothing. I know it's nothing. I just want somebody else to confirm that it's nothing so I can move on with my life. And um, I just remember being, walking in and my, the ultrasonographer, Margaret telling me Uh, look, we probably won't be doing that mammogram because you're too young, too high risk for, you know, long-term exposure to radiation if we do something like that. And me thinking, oh, okay. Uh, But thankfully, Margaret saved my life. She really did. She did that first sweep and couldn't find anything on the ultrasound. But at this stage, you could really feel it. Um, And so she just got that ultrasound one just in the right spot And there it was up on the screen. And, um, you know, after two pregnancies, seeing an ultrasound, you know, I'm by no means an expert, but to see what you're looking at at that stage. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) But to see this little circle on my breast where there wasn't any other circles on my breast. Yeah, that should not be there. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, uh, I I suppose that was uh, like we were talking before, like it was. It was this wave of relief that finally I wasn't being this kind of. Uh, I like don't want to say the word creep. even though. Yeah, yeah, of yeah. like it, it. I I didn't feel like I was just being like it was all in my mind, and that it was nothing. Yeah. It was actually something, and that I'd and I was glad that I'd actually kept going to to find something. And at that stage, we had no idea what it was. Um, mm one of the other nurses came and put her head in and said could she leave because it was the end of the day on a Friday and I remember Margaret telling her no look we'll probably have to give this one a biopsy her you know quickly walking out talking to the radiologist and saying yeah we probably actually do need to do that mammogram so in I go for my very first mammogram and um, yeah so I, I remember going and saying to her look you know curiosity got the best of me and I said do you mind if I have a look at the the slide to see what it looks like on mammogram and it was this little circle with pinpricks of light and I I kind of still think of it as like stardust or starlight or something like that very very like beautiful looking but so completely devastating at the same time of course So they they showed me into another room. At that point, they said, look, we're going to get the radiologist, the chief radiologist, to come in and talk to you. And I said, do you mind if I call my mother? And thankfully, she'd finished up for the day. And so I said, can you come up? I think they're going to give me a biopsy. And the radiologist was talking to me. And to this day, none of it made any sense. None of it washed it completely my whole world had gone into a whirlwind. They talk about this all the time. You know, you go into shock and you can't think properly. The only thought in my mind was, can I breastfeed my son? Because at this point I'd been away from him and not been able to feed him for quite a number of hours and my milk had just come in and it was getting quite painful. So that's what I was thinking, you know, after a mammogram, can I still breastfeed? You know, what's this all going to mean if I've got cancer, like, Will I still be able to breastfeed? Like literally that was the only thing that I was concerned about at that point. And they didn't Hardly have concern
0: for yourself. <laughs> <Hardly>. <laughs> no concern for yourself whatsoever. But your yeah. newborn, it's everything. And that's that totally makes sense. It absolutely does.
1: Yeah. And, it, you know, the same with like they wanted to give me uh, a sedative or like a painkiller before they did the core biopsy. And I said, look, I'm probably going to be okay. Don't give it to me because I don't want – to go to my son and if he gets it and he gets sick then I'll be more concerned about that and I remember them continually asking me are you sure you don't want something and I said look this is nothing I just had a baby six weeks ago (laughs) this (laughs) this pain is like nothing in comparison and it didn't you know you're in a bit of a whirlwind and so none of it really lands I think But I was very grateful for my mother being there with me because even though she kind of just happened upon all of this information as I was happening upon it, she was there to drive me home. She was there to like explain things to my husband because he was at work when all this was happening, explain things to my aunt who obviously had been looking after my kids while I'd been there. And and, you know, then somebody went and picked up my car and all of that sort of stuff happened. But I was told I wasn't going to get results for another five days because uh, it was the weekend and they probably wouldn't get it till the Wednesday. So, my husband, you know, he had something really important with work. So, he went off to central Queensland on the Monday morning and we all expected that we weren't going to hear back till the Wednesday. And so, you know, terrible weekend of nightmares. You, you know, like you can't explain where your, your mind goes.
0: When you think that,
1: what was that waiting like? It's it's the I think for anybody who's been in this situation, that is the worst of everything, the unknown of what's coming, and you know we can prepare ourselves as much as possible, and certainly you know my organisation, we definitely want to try and do that for young women who are coming behind us because it is the worst situation ever. You do go to that terrible place, the dark. The dark hour of the soul, as I think I can't even remember which poet said it, but it is that dark night of the soul, um, where you do you just have this terrible picture of what might happen in the future, and trying to get your head straight is is really difficult. Uh, so anyway, we got to Monday afternoon, and my mother's on the phone, and she says to me, "Where are you?" And I said, "Well, just picked up my daughter from childcare." She said, well, you need to go to the doctor's. They've got the results. So I told her to get off the phone and she said she'd already made an appointment. La So I go to the, the doctor's and um, my GP's walking out as I'm walking in because uh, she had to go to a family uh, event and I'm going to go see the locum and the locum is getting the results as I'm getting the results. And I remember being quite impatient and just saying to her, look, can you just give me the results? Like, just print me another copy so I can read them, please. So Um, you're on the same page? (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. And I guess she said to me something like, you know, you must have known something wasn't right because, yes, it is actually breast cancer. So, you know, it's like we've spent 20 minutes talking right now, Patricia, and it took me that, like, that's why I spend so much of my my education piece talking about is just getting my diagnosis was yeah. such an ordeal, you know, and it shouldn't be for anybody, but for young women, it just seems that we don't fit a profile that is sort of set in stone almost, um, that we're not old, we're not menopausal, uh, we don't have yeah. family histories necessarily. Um, yeah and all of the other factors. So it kind of we kind of don't get looked at in the same way. Uh, but, yeah, so I, I got that diagnosis and thus began 18 weeks of intensive treatment, including um, a couple of surgeries to get all of the cancer out and to get wide margins and to check my lymph nodes because there was some lymph involvement, um, an IVF um, fertility treatment cycle um to conserve my fertility because chemo can put you into early menopause and render you and I mean infertile. at this stage
0: yeah Rochelle you you'd just given birth exactly far
1: out of given, but you wouldn't have even been thinking of, of children at that 100% point. not no no like my husband and I hadn't even had the conversation about do we want more than two kids <laughs> like it, it wasn't even something we'd really even considered because we were just getting through that pregnancy and that birth um so, you know, we went down that path. Unfortunately for us, it wasn't successful. You know, my, the beautiful, beautiful gynecologist uh, that worked with us, you know, he bulk billed all of our treatment, all of the surgeries, everything. The anaesthetist, he gave us bulk bill for that treatment too, just because they, they recognised why I was there. It wasn't because I was trying to have a baby. It was because I'd been handed this diagnosis and it was trying to save any fertility for the future. But yeah, as it as it turned out, nothing nothing was able to be saved. Um, but you know, in retrospect, all things in good time. And in that time, I couldn't quite accept it. But now I'm very accepting of it. Got two very healthy, very happy kids. And um, then we kind of had that nice little break, I suppose, doing the IVF before chemo started. And chemo was rough, you know, and and a lot of the treatment and the scans and things like that meant that I couldn't touch my kids because I was either radioactive or cytotoxic and I didn't want there to be any question that I could have put them in danger so I would oh, yes. give them big hugs and kisses before I'd leave to go to the clinic on a Monday and when I came back they were told they were not allowed to go near mummy um they had to stay oh, away from mummy so hard having such
0: young children as well you know
1: and it's for them to
0: understand and for you to also they don't get it I mean we're in a situation now with COVID where you can't hug your friends yeah that's that and that's hard I find it hard I'm a hugger I'm a chronic hugger yeah but to not be able to hug your young children yeah
1: well it's even like you know a crying child you want to pick them up right you know and I couldn't because like the sweat on my hands or, you know, the cells on my body. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know. I just, I never wanted there to be any question that I hadn't done all I could to try and keep them safe. Uh, and from, and being safe from me, which yeah. in a way is, is a bit of a mind bend because aren't you supposed to be their biggest supporter and protector as a mother? Absolutely. So yeah, that's, that was really, that was really tricky. Um, uh, but, yeah, we got through to the other end, um, went on a nice holiday up to Port Douglas in between times, and then I started seven weeks of radiation, which was every day. And that was quite tough as well because it really, mm. really messed up my skin, um, third-degree burns and the rest of it, which was not yeah. fun to deal with. Yeah. And continuing to go through immunotherapy and hormone therapy. my immune therapy finally finished in May 2015 And we took up the very next day, my husband and my oncologist, they were scheming behind my back. Um, So basically, um, my husband had had called uh, my oncologist and said, right, so when's she finishing the exact day? And can I take her to Hawaii immediately Uh... following? And so literally, I had my last Herceptin which is a wonder drug for people who've had my subtype of breast cancer um Mm. and yeah we were in Hawaii for two weeks which was it was just divine because it was so separate to everything that we put up with for the last you know 16 18 months beforehand um but then every month I was still having to go in to get a monthly injection, and every day I'm taking a pill for hormone therapy, uh, which renders me um, chemically menopausal, which comes with all the other excitements of of being menopausal in your 30s. So yeah. I I think like it's the the club no one wanted to join, but you're kind of glad you're there when you do get there just for the people that you meet but it's hard to see that at the beginning and it's hard to see that when you're in the middle of everything because of course you just really like why me like why did this all happen
0: so and you know what you're totally entitled to ask the why me question I mean you don't you don't fit the boxes at the time you don't are too young you know you you, you're healthy otherwise yeah why you've got no family history why why you yeah yeah, but just, just lucky, I guess. Lucky. Lucky lucky. <laughs> it's it's a funny kind of lucky.
1: <laughs> but I yeah. totally
0: understand. Yeah. Now, Rochelle, tell me tell me more about the people you've met along the way. I mean, you've talked about your doctors and your teams being absolutely divine, and I think I know personally that goes without saying. A lot of teams are, are beautiful in, in situations that are quite dire, but the other people that you've met along your way.
1: Oh look, I think when you're a young woman who's had breast cancer, it's it's just a different set of circumstances. You know, you've got potentially had young kids or maybe you haven't been even considering whether or not you're going to have kids yet. So you're kind of in a very similar beginning of life period. Mm -hmm. Um, You're also maybe considering, you know, what to do with your life or you might be in the beginning stages of a job or a career. And so it's a very... Yeah, it's a very lonely place, to be honest. Um, The stats in Australia this year, uh, just over 20,000 people will be diagnosed with breast cancer, and of that 20,000, about 1,000 will be diagnosed under the age of 40. So if you think about how disparate that might be and where all of those women might be, like they could be in remote areas, in city centres, and all over the country, you may that never is actually isolating yeah you may never even meet somebody who's in your in their 20s or 30s who's had this disease um so I was I was very fortunate to find a young women's support group in Brisbane and they are really one of the they're very unique in Australia actually there's very few young women's support groups for breast cancer in Australia mm. and What I realized was that being able to just have the stupid conversations about like, oh, wow, your hair's growing back and make funny jokes about like chemo and and things that your family just will not get. And the friends that you've got, they just like they can empathize, but they just don't get it like somebody who's going through it with you does. Um, And that kind of community was – it was. It was really – it was the monumental shift I needed right at the beginning of my treatment. So in February, like, so literally a month after I'd been diagnosed, um, I went to my first support group and I thought, Oh God, I don't want to go to a support group meeting. I don't want to be like, you know, hi, my name is Rochelle and I've got X, (laughs) Y, Z breast cancer and everyone clap. Um, it wasn't like that at all. In fact, the night I went was their art night and we were doing self-portraits in the style of Picasso and it was nothing to do with breast cancer. It was all in like just, you know, talking about all sorts of things. But, of course, in that – using that vehicle of art, people started talking about things and so they'd share bits and pieces and make jokes and, like, that's where it first came about. And um, – that was the first time I laughed since I was diagnosed. Actually, someone made a funny crack about um, <laughs> they didn't realize they'd get a free um, Brazilian out of getting a chemotherapy. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was you know not as funny for anybody else, but at the time it was just what exactly I what needed. You needed as well. yeah. yeah, yeah. So look, I I recognize that you know I would go to other support group meetings where I was the youngest by thirty. 20 or 30 years and, you know, I'd be talking about how sad I was that I wasn't able to breastfeed anymore and about my newborn and my three-year-old and these women either had no children at home or their children had children and it was just a very, it was very different. Really uh, strange place to, yeah, where yeah. no one else would get what you were going
0: through and that, yeah. that would have been incredibly difficult.
1: Yeah, and, you know, just a very, very different space so look I got to the end of my treatment came back from Hawaii was still going and getting my injections and I sort of I'd already made a decision that I wasn't returning to my career Um, I hadn't been treated very nicely and and that's something probably like for another podcast at another time but employers have a great deal uh, to do with the way that a diagnosis can affect the person going through it and Absolutely. and just how, how big of an impact it can have. And unfortunately, yeah. mine weren't so wonderful. Um, and so I'd sort of decided, look, if, if this is how I'm going to get treated at my moment of greatest need, then perhaps I should focus on something else and maybe this is the time to reassess and, and to do something different with my life. So I sort of went down a path of uh, rediscovery of like, what did I like? What what was I good at? And, you know, how could I, you know, make a career or a life out of what was this new thing I should be doing? Um, and so I did some courses and I, you know, learned some soft skills in terms of business and and things like that. And in the August of that s- 2015, so about 18 months, 19 months after I was diagnosed, I went to my first business conference and it was uh, something that I wouldn't normally have ever gone to. And I decided I was just going to keep an open mind and try and think of, you know, how this might apply to this new life I was trying to create Um, and just meet some new people and, you know, basically just go away and do something for myself and by myself. For a yep. for a little weekend. So yeah, it was it was actually a huge catalyst for what came next. So at the conference dinner, I sat next to Wendy Fantasia, who is a world-class body paint artist. Some an industry that I would never have come in contact with previously. You know, obviously, as a mother of small children, I have had my fair share of face painters but I had (laughs) never met a body paint artist before ever. And so we were talking a lot about, you know, where I'd come from, my story, and she told me a bit about herself and what she did and showed me some images and said, look, you know, why don't you consider me painting you before the next conference next year? And that's kind of, you know, where we left it. And um, to be honest, I really didn't think that it was something that I – would necessarily do it wasn't every anything that it was on my radar or anything Um, but about a week later um, I woke up and uh, my husband and my kids had come down to Melbourne to be with me for the week afterwards and I, I just had this overwhelming urge to say that I thought that we should be doing something like body painting for young women who'd had breast cancer as a way to empower them after they'd had all of this loss and trauma. So, you know, partial or full mastectomies, double mastectomies, weight gain, weight loss, loss of hair, you know, complete body image shifts and transformations. Maybe they've, you know, lost their careers, lost relationships. Like, the whole gamut of trauma and loss that comes with a breast cancer diagnosis, but particularly for a young woman when, you know, breasts are so closely linked to our femininity and for some women Mm. who actually lose their fertility as part of this, you know, to not ever have the opportunity to have a child or to lose the choice of being able to have more children. Um, All of that gets wrapped up in this, amazing amount of trauma and loss and I thought you know what wouldn't it be empowering and wouldn't it really be amazing for these women who've been through so much to have this kind of complete transformation Um, and so I called up Wendy and I said hey here's my idea what do you think and she liked the idea and so she jumped on board and that was the beginning of what ended up becoming So Brave, which is the charity I'm founding Managing Director for. And we are now Australia's Young Women's Breast Cancer Charity. We've been across the entire country, working directly with young breast cancer survivors and doing incredible body painting transformation days, raising hundreds of thousands of dollars for direct research and support programs, uh, and now we're branching into education for the next generation so that they have the knowledge and self-advocacy tools to not just know their own bodies for breast cancer and to do those checks, but to know themselves more broadly for a whole range of things. So it's it's kind of That's... been this like shift, like my life before and my life after breast cancer. <laughs> They're very different. So, uh, you know. I think sometimes when we get these diagnoses and we kind of handed this pile of crap, um, it's important to sort of look at it and think, well, all right, now what? And um, yeah. what, can I, what can I make of this? Uh, so, so for me it was, all right, I want to make sure that for my daughter and my son there is something better for them uh, when they get to my age um, and that things like this don't happen to young women you know that young women are empowered to speak up and to get the right diagnosis and that doctors listen to them and actually follow through with getting appropriate investigations and scans and care uh, when when's needed. So that's a little bit about the progress since my diagnosis yeah and that's absolutely
0: phenomenal I mean like that is that what resilience is to you is that is that taking <laughs> that bad piece of pile of crap as so you as so you you know so well we'll describe it because let's face it that's exactly what it is but is that pile of crap and doing something with it to make sure that no one else has to
1: go through it is that your resilience um to you yeah I guess it's, it's tricky to say that, isn't it? Because, you know, nobody asks for these diagnoses. Nobody asks to get cancer. It's not something that we would yeah. wish on our worst enemy. It really isn't. Yet, I think at some point, every person who I've ever spoken to who's had a diagnosis, they've looked at it and questioned, what is it that I did and why did I get this? You know. There are, there's, there's people even in twin studies who ask this question, you know, I got it. My twin didn't, you know, we've got the same genetics, lived in the same lifestyle, did the same things. And yeah, I got it and they didn't. So I think lots of people question, you know, the why me and part of the resilience piece is sort of picking yourself back up from that and saying, well, look, why not me, but what else can I do with this? So you know, even yes. even if it's just sharing your story, if it even if it's as simple as donating to an organization, or even if it's just getting through it for you and your family, um, that yes. that's resilience. And for me, it was like you know, obviously I'm a bit different to normal people. I I decided that I was gonna take the whole <laughs> the, the whole normal. hog and like you know create this big change and, like, I, I identified there was this massive gap for young women that we don't have those connections, we don't have that support, there's nothing to empower us and to, like, help us to share our voices and to raise awareness. But for some people, like, yeah. literally just going to get their chemo every time they have to go, yeah. that is resilience because it's scary. You know, you're going and fronting up, to get a chemical cocktail that's supposed to kill you injected into your body and, and, you've, and yeah. you're doing it because you want to be here. You're doing it because there really isn't a choice. There really is just do this and you have this outcome or don't do it and you're rolling the dice. So yeah, I think absolutely. sometimes it's not – I mean I don't see myself so much as resilient, although people have often said that of me. I see it as just doing what I thought I had to do to get there and to get through. Yeah. And I'm
0: sure, I'm sure more than once you've been called a tough cookie.
1: Yeah. I, I'm not so sure. I, I definitely think <laughs> that uh, people, they recognize that I just don't give up. And yeah. a lot of people who've had this same experience, they're very much that
0: don't yeah, give up, absolutely. keep going. Yeah, yeah, And, Rochelle, what, what's your situation now and what's, what are you looking at for the future? So That's a loaded question.
1: It's a loaded question, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, so for my subtype of breast cancer, you need to be vigilant and stay on top of it. So I will be taking some kind of hormonal therapy for at least the next five years, most probably longer, um, depending on what research studies come back. Uh, so there's that maintenance, and there's that kind of you know continual annual scanning and, and going and seeing various professionals to to keep up to date. So there's always that maintenance, and, and I probably will never be completely divorced from from that reality, uh, but I don't really let it define me anymore. Um, I'm trying as best I can to think of what's next for me and my family. You know I don't have babies anymore they're school kids now so what's the next step for us as a family and to try and think of where we're going what we're doing obviously for the organization it's about growth and scaling and we definitely see that in high schools and universities and in young women and young professionals we definitely want to get that preventative message out there and even if it's not you know prevention from getting breast cancer because we can't tell if you're going to get breast cancer necessarily or not. There's different risk factors and genetic testing, et cetera, but still there's an element of risk profiling and you're not very sure if you're going to get it or not. But to make sure that if they ever do, that they have the information, the knowledge and tools and the self-advocacy so that they can get an early diagnosis, that's, that's something that I'm really passionate about doing because Most of the women who I talk to get that early diagnosis because somebody asks them a question, hey, are you doing regular breast checks? Or, hey, do you know you should be? Um, Just like that simple, simple question. Um, And to explain that every woman needs to be vigilant, regardless if they've got a family history or their age or any other profile. So that if they do get something that's unusual for them, they do go and see a doctor. And then if that doctor was like mine and unfortunately other people's in the past, that they go and see somebody else and they ask for scans. And even if they go and get a scan or a mammogram and they're just not feeling right about it, they just keep going, getting checks up, follow-ups, all those sorts of things because Until we get a cure or a vaccine or some more amazing treatments, which the researchers are always working on, and they are phenomenal people across the world who are doing that, but until we get to that point, the best possible outcome is to get it early. So that's what we need to be all mindful of and continuing to be on top of for ourselves. Of course. And
0: I think as well, not just, not just for, it's not saying, not diminishing it in any way, but not just for breast cancer. I think asking mm. those questions and if you're not feeling right about it, asking more questions until you get the answer that you think sits well within you is important for, for anybody with anything, but particularly in the chronic illness space and things yeah. like that. So pursuing that, that answer, despite you know, being told you don't fit the box in any way, shape or form is so, so important. Hundred percent. I think even if if yeah, when you're when you're going out there and speaking to to young women and young professionals about that, it's 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 resonating no matter what that diagnosis might be or whatever they're pursuing.
1: Hundred percent. There is look there outside of breast cancer, there are lots of other things that an early diagnosis can, you know, improve your overall lifestyle and and potential future uh, survival rate for. So Getting it in and getting early is is so important. Um, and then of course, you know, we're investing in research. So that hopefully um, in the future we we aren't even talking about breast cancer anymore. That's uh, absolutely. That's that completely behind us. Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. Rochelle, thank you so so much. You've been through such a phenomenal journey, and it's it's really shown the resilience you are a tough cookie, you are completely <laughs> resilient and you've come out the other side being able to sort of look back and almost laugh at it, which I think it's a dark humour that people only with chronic illnesses have and I love it. It's, it's, it's truly a sign of resilience. You can just come out the other side and see what you've gone through and go, you know what, I beat that and look what I've come from and look where I am now and, Yeah it's amazing and your charity is so brave we'll pop up links on our uh, socials and things like that for this um thank you everyone for listening today to the tough cookie podcast my name is patricia Shates. please hit subscribe if you've liked our episode and we hope to see you next thursday thank you have a good day thanks so much patricia thanks thanks bye Thank you for listening to the Tough Cookie Podcast. To find out more about The Sweetest Gift, go to www.thesweetestgift.org.au. Thank you for joining us on The Tough Cookie Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please join us next Thursday for another amazing story of hope, resilience, and really overcoming the odds.